Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. Outside of perhaps Alfred Hitchcock, it's arguable that there has never been a film director as significant in Britain as Ken Loach. In his seven-decade career, Loach's unrivaled filmography has been the most potent artistic voice for the dispossessed in his native England. And so, it is a tragedy for both the art form and the country that his new film will be his last. At 87, the man is drawing a line under this remarkable career, which began in the 1960s and has enjoyed multiple peaks, two palm doors, and over the last decade, an unprecedented march back into the mainstream with I, Daniel Blake, and Sorry We Missed You. His final film, The Old Oak, marks a completion of this trilogy of social dramas set in the northeast of England and is as touching and as human as either of the two that came before it. Your new film, The Old Oak, it's named after and based around a pub. And, and I wondered what your earliest memories or experiences were of pubs. Well, I, I mean, uh, my dad didn't go to the pub very much, actually, but the pub, the bar, was often the meeting place for co communities, particularly men, really. Uh, traditionally, though, not so much now. It was where people would go and uh, have a drink and meet their friends, play games in the bar, um, darts or dominoes, um, and talk about the world, argue. And in mining communities, that was often replaced by the, the miners' club, or in other times by the church hall, or by just libraries sometimes, places where people met. We've lost almost all those now. And the communities like the one in the film have lost everything. In this particular case, only the bar remains, only the pub remains, where people can meet. So it becomes, it becomes contested territory. See, what is extraordinary about Lacana, for example, is that there's 8,000 will be, see the film tonight, I yeah. hope. <laughs> um, and to meet together is essential. I mean, that's, we are social animals. And that's, that's when we have a collective strength. And increasingly, society is becoming fragmented, the kids now are just on their screens. They're not relating to people in real life around them. So maintaining public spaces where we meet and share experiences and exchange ideas and get a sense of our strength is really important. There's a kind of through line in the film about how discourse in public space has been replaced by doing it online and the kind of, frankly, how that warps the people who are you know having those conversations what do you think the internet has done to conversation society well i think the, the internet has fragmented people it, it's it's allowed them space to well you don't get a sense of your collective strength mm. therefore you become more weak you become more vulnerable it's easier just to express prejudice to use la intemperate language because you're not there's no one there to receive the language you use. So you, people get abuse, attacked, just treated in a way that you wouldn't if you were actually confronting someone and recognizing their common humanity. Mm. People become objects when they're just targets on social media. 
on the other hand, you know, you can organize, you can, you can, the, the medium itself is neutral, but the way it's being used is, is I think is, is having a, on balance a kind of fragmenting, alienating effect. The antagonists in this film really come from within the community. Obviously, the system itself is what's broken. It's not like, say, I, Daniel Blake, where you really get into the system and see where, where all the, the flaws are. But it seems more like it is the existence of these digital platforms that allows these perhaps otherwise perfectly decent men to begin a slippery slope of firstly being cruel and finally being violent. Yes. I mean, it, it was important to us is that it, it's the two communities. It, it's, the, it's, it's the people in the ex-mining village who have nothing, the community wrecked, consciously wrecked by the, the government of Margaret Thatcher, the, the coal mine closed and nothing put in its place. Shops are closed, jobs have disappeared, only gig economy, um, insecure work. And, and into that community comes the Syrian refugees who have experienced the trauma of war. I mean, the destruction of their homes and nowhere to live. The welcome they receive is, at the beginning, is, very, is not a welcome at all. It's very harsh. And it was important to us that you see that why people are angry. They're not angry without a reason, mm. you know. So the, the community has been wrecked. And they think, why are the people come to us? We've got nothing. Why not send them to where there's the infrastructure is good, the people are earning a lot of money. And so the, there's, there's a genuine anger. And that's the audience that the right-wing press, the right-wing politicians exploit. Mm. Because now we have politicians who talk about providing a hostile environment to immigrants, consciously hostile environment. You've got the press whipping up anti-immigrant feelings. And of course, people who are susceptible to that, when they have a grievance, a genuine grievance, and the consequences, instead of blaming the people who are exploiting them, the politicians who have abandoned them, the big corporations are ripping them off. Instead of attacking them, they attack people who are even more vulnerable, who've got nothing, the immigrants. Yeah, well, I mean, the politicians and the press, they, they manage to make what is actually a class issue look like a race issue. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, right now, you know, in England, we have a government who are putting refugees on barges in order to keep them there. Have the politicians always been this cruel? Oh, yes, I think so. Um, it, it goes back to the nature of our democracy. And Parliament is an expression of the ruling class, by and large, um, established in the 17th century. The men of property, the merchants, the industrialists, the, the, those who led the Industrial Revolution, those who, based on private profits, control what we produce, how we produce it, how we use the world's resources. And their great skill, when we got universal suffrage, that everyone has the vote, is that Parliament would still represent the interests of those with power and property. And the collusion of the party of the left in that, or supposed left in that, enables politicians to present a kind of unity on the way society is organized. We see this in Britain by the, now the Labour Party, meant to be the party of Labour, the clues in the title, now identifying almost entirely with the party of the right. So now we have a healthcare issue. It was announced just two or three days ago that new health institutions for diagnosis will be almost entirely run by private health companies. 
And with the hostile treatment of the immigrants, we have no commitments from the party of the left, supposed left, the Labour Party, to change that, to challenge that. They don't see what they would do. Mm. We have the appearance of democracy, but you, you cannot effectively vote for the fundamental changes that will establish equality, justice, recognizing the common humanity of the people who come in desperate need. The question of how we treat it, it goes to the very heart of our political system um, and, and its fundamental flaw that it is the politicians are an agent of the ruling class. The Old Oak actually really is it's a film about collective power and being stronger together than apart. But unlike all of your films, it kind of ends on a hopeful note, which I'm very grateful for. Did you always know you were going to try and end with a message of hope? Well, it goes to the heart of the story, really. And, uh, you know, don't give the end of the story away because it's, um, I mean, there's twists and turns. And, uh, you know, the, the, the film is a question. I mean, can people coexist? Can mm. they transcend the hostile propaganda and find solidarity or not? And, uh, you know, I hope the question remains open until towards the end. But I think hope Hope is, has a political consequence because if a community hopes, if, if you hope things can get better, mm. then you have the strength to organize to achieve it. If you feel it's hopeless, oh, we can't do anything. Forces are too against us are too great. Life is what it is. If you're hopeless, then that's when the far right strikes. And you can see it across Europe. You know, whether it's, it's in Italy with Milano, in France with Le Pen, in Spain with Vox, you know, and we've got our own kind of moderate far right with the, 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 the Farage groups and the right wing Tories. We had Thatcher. And so you, the far right has different expressions in different countries. The far right is strong in, in Eastern Europe now where Stalinism mm. collapsed. And that's the danger. People have no hope they can make the world a better place. And the whole impending climate disaster again attacks hope because, God sake, the catastrophe is on its way, you know. Yeah. So, so finding hope at this, it's absolutely politically essential. Otherwise, we're screwed. Is that perhaps the role then that art can play? Yeah, well, well, you said we can, you know, we all play a part in a way. It's your third film in the Northeast in a, in a row. But one thing that jumped out at me as something that has actually changed since you made your last film there was in the opening scene and the refugees arrive and the doors open and they're, they're met by some kind of aggressive men, one of whom is obviously wearing, because they're so ubiquitous in that part of the world, a Newcastle shirt. But since you made your last film, Newcastle had been bought by Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and I wondered if you were, you, if that was a kind of conscious decision, the, the, the kind of act of irony there. No, not really. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, uh, it was just a contradiction because, but by and large, you know, Paul and I, Paul Laverty, the Rice and I are great football fans. And we go and see the tune when, when we're there. And um, Dave Turner plays the main part as a great Newcastle fan. So, no, it's just a little irony, really. Um, the Newcastle shirt is worn by a Scots latter <laughs> who's, who's pissed and is just aggressive. I mean, he's not, he's not, the, the drink has got the better of him. And, um, and he's wearing a football shirt like everyone does, but it, no, it's, uh, it's a little joke, really. Fair enough. Um, 
you know, if this is to be, as you've said, quite possibly your last film, it's hard not to make some kind of comparison of the relationship between TJ and his dog and the relation, central relationship from Kez. <laughs> is that something that was you you were thinking about at the time? No, not really. I mean, again, it's um, <laughs> Paul wrote, wrote the story, and um, I think it's a it's a lovely idea. I mean, I can say because Paul wrote it, but it, it's a lovely idea because TJ is isolated mm. when, when the film starts, and his marriage is gone, and um, the idea of the Mara, you know, the the Mara is. Um, in Durham, in the northeast, where the mines were, that your mara or your mate is the person you rely on, the person you work alongside underground. So, if if you've got a good mara, he'll he'll preserve your life if you're in an accident. You know, it doesn't matter. Like you depend on each other to that extent. So, having a good mara and and um, TJ's is his dog, because it, he can be is, both isolated and have company at the same time with a pet, can't you? Because mm. you're. You're a bit isolated from human relationships, but you've got a, a weird dog who's always at your side, you know. Do you consider this film an act of journalism in some way? No, I, I, I think films have to go, well, I mean, using journalism in, in the sense of a report. Yeah. Um, a film has to be more than that. I mean, yes, in part a report, but you've got to explore the real as far as you can, the depths of the hum human exchange right? mm. um, and the despair of TJ and his capacity to come through that and start work, start doing things again and the the despair of the Syrian families and can they be touched and just and the friendship between TJ and the, the woman who is the photographer, the Syrian woman, and how they connect to each other. Where do they find us? the strength to make that connection. It's like a good novel, isn't it? I mean, a, a novel has got to be more than a report. You've got to touch the feelings of people. But a focus on truth is key for you, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I... yeah, yeah. Well, I think the truth is the um, contract with the audience, isn't it? Mm. The, the, you say, well, we want you to consider this view of the world and we'll we'll present it as as truthfully and as accurately as we can in terms of the medium, in terms of the the characters you see. You've got to believe are those characters, the way they walk, the texture of their skin even is actually, if you were doing the documentary, you say, yes, I believe that bloke is who he says he is. Yeah. I believe those guys are just working men, some without work, in a bar, drinking when they shouldn't in the middle of the day. Yeah. You look at them, you say, yes, I, I believe that. And some, some are still active in the unions and, and some are more thoughtful than others and some are just by it, prejudiced. And women too, you know. So when you look at it, you've got to, well, I do believe that woman could be working behind the bar. She isn't an actress playing it. If you can achieve that, then you mustn't betray that by saying something about the world that is false. There's a very moving passage in the film where they talk about the miners' strikes, significance of the union, everybody bonding together, later kind of paralleled by the refugee community and the local community coming together. Can anything replace unions or do we need to get back to a place where unions have struck? Okay. Well, I think the essential point of a trade union is people who have no power individually having power together. And the advantage of a union is if you have that strength, you can stop production. And that hurts the employer, that hurts the the whole system of 
production for profit. Workers in a union can say, right, we're going to stop this. You're not going to make money out of us for the next period until we get what we demand. Pull the switch, everything stops. That's real power. So unions have a unique strength. They're uniquely necessary because that's the most tangible expression of the power of the working class organized at work at the point of production. People can also organize in communities and that has great strength too. And you can organize in grassroots level on particular campaigns, whether it's to do with preserving the principles of, the, of a health service or keeping a hospital open or keeping a school open, it's, whatever the needs of the community are. So they're valuable, but unions have a particular strength. So yes, we need unions that are not led to collude with employers, but mm. led to really make fundamental change. If you went into this knowing that this would be your last film, was there a sense of pressure about choosing the right script? Well, there's always a pressure to choose. I mean, you'd never, I mean, that's always the biggest question. And, and working with Paul has been such a joy because um, we see the world in the same way and we kind of tend to laugh at the same things. And that, I mean, it's an absolute partnership of equals. And um, unless Paul writes, I've got nothing to direct. So it, a film is never by the director. You know, that's director's vanity. It's, it's always a collective and, and the key partnership is writer-director. And so the question of what film you do is always the biggest question. I mean, it always has to be the film you can't avoid making. And if, it, if it's the film you, you say, well, look, we've really got to do this, mm -hmm. then it's okay to do it. If you say, well, we could do it or we could leave it, well, don't make it. Well, in that case, I'm interested as to why you went back to the same area for a third time. It must have felt like unfinished business then. It was. It didn't set out as a trilogy, but it, it finished as one. The advantage of being in the same place is that all different aspects of the current situation are united by those voices, that landscape, those people. And in a way, that kind of, I hope, clarifies each of the three stories and gives them a unity. We hope, anyway. Well, I think they're great. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks very much. A great thanks to Ken. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell. <laughs>